Galatians, one of the ways that you can begin to prepare for this next series is by begin reading through Galatians. Um, one of the blessings about preparing for a day like today is just kind of reading the text over and over and over and over again. And uh, it's amazing what God does when you read His Word with a seeking heart. So I want to encourage you, uh, beginning this week, even as we end today, uh, this series, to uh, crack open the book of Galatians and just read through it. Read through it a few times. Um, I can guarantee that you will be blessed. Second thing is just kind of in regards to uh, God's Not Dead, uh, the playing of the movie. Just to kind of save some time, and I really enjoy setting these things up. Uh, I'm planning to be downstairs to take signatures, but if I can just get a show of hands of how many might be going, because if I don't get at least ten people, we're just not going to do it. Not, not in there. I see one up there. Two, three, four. Okay. You please see me downstairs. And the purpose I need some signatures uh, is so that I can order enough pizza. Okay, so I'm going to be ordering based on the, the names that I get here on the list. Thanks for your attention on that. Um, it's been an awesome ride going through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I think we, we've gone through it in our mosaic as we've gone through... Uh, a survey of the Old Testament. It's been a blessing reading it again and looking at specific things. And one of the things that I've walked away with is just kind of how fascinating the realism of Scripture is. It's very captivating. Uh, it doesn't present us with a, a romantic portrayal of life by no means. Kind of like uh, the story of boy meets girl and boy loses girl and boy gets girl in the end. Or how about stories that always end with a happy ending and they live happily ever after they end. Two favorites in our home when uh, my girls were younger were uh, Cinderella and the Little Mermaid. I can't tell you how many times I've seen those two movies. Uh, how about uh, my favorite stories about when a good guy always catches a bad guy. I love those stories for some reason. When Seth came on the scene... It was Iron Giant, it was the Hulk, it was Batman. Uh, these were stories that it didn't matter what the conflict was, who the antagonist was, the good guy always wins and the endings were always happy. But not so with real life, is it? In real life we face challenges quite often with no immediate resolution nothing stays the same sometimes for good but sometimes for bad the Bible is definitely not a book of legends and fairy tales as some have claimed it to be the Bible is about real life real people real issues and a God who is real and in touch with his people and I want to just expand that a little more. God is very much in touch with His creation. The Bible narrative often presents us with frustrated ambitions, disappointing failure, neglected opportunities, and broken promises. And we see that sin often spoils the story. Abraham lies. 
Jacob cheats. Moses loses his temper. We see David commit adultery and murder. Peter lies. The blunt honesty of the Bible makes it such a compelling book to read that it is both significant and applicable. And Nehemiah epitomizes this blunt reality in chapter 13. But, and he could have probably ended on a higher note, as we'll see shortly. But had he done that, then this just would have been another story with a happy ending. Let's consider what has led up to this point in our journey through the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to briefly go through just all that you guys have heard in the past uh, few months in the book of Nehemiah, beginning with chapter 1. The catalyst for renewal of God's people was prayer in this opening chapter. It all started with prayer. Why did Nehemiah pray? He was hungry for God's glory in Jerusalem. He was broken-hearted for the spiritual condition of his brothers and sisters. And we see how prayer led to action in chapter 2. Nehemiah positioned himself to be used by God. He was, a faith, he, was, he was faithful and available. He was an obedient servant of God. In chapter 3, Nehemiah couldn't have done it alone. He couldn't have done all that, he, that was accomplished by himself. The rebuilding project was a community project. Different people worked in different areas with different gifts. Every member of the community played a crucial part. And as we moved on into chapters 4 and 6, we see that threats came from every angle. There was ridicule, letters, lies, threats of violence, and there was division. And the opposition was both external and internal. But God provided every single time. After all, this was his project. God was faithful to bring it to completion. After 52 days, the wall was finished. God used the prayers, uh, united effort and sacrifice, and unbending courage of his people. It didn't stop here, chapters 7 and 8. Because although the wall was restored and the people needed, they still needed to be renewed, everything had been leading up to this. The merciful renewal of God's renegade people and it all revolved around God's word the people were revived and transformed by God's word through preparing their hearts listening with a posture of worship and putting it to practice chapter 9 after hearing a word the people realized their woeful shortcomings as a people they had incessantly strayed from God and turned to false gods they confessed their sins, but instead of confessing half the truth, that they were sinful, they confessed the whole truth. And though they were sinful, God remained faithful and merciful. Chapter 10, the confession led them to commitment, especially in three areas, intermarriage with other religions, Sabbath keeping, and providing for the temple. And now chapters 11 and 12, the culmination of all these events leads to a great celebration. The community thrives with each member, sacrificing, serving, and using their gifts. And if you remember, just that, uh, the last uh, verse there in chapter 12, notice how many times the word joy is mentioned at the end of chapter 12. They offered great sacrifices, it says. That day... And they rejoiced. 
For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. But instead of ending in chapter 12, we have chapter 13. It's a chapter that shows signs of erosion. Chapter 13 has been described by numerous people as somewhat anticlimactic compared to the previous chapters. But with a closer look, we can see and learn that there is hope and promise in this story. We find these as we consider three questions. Three questions that revolve around three major conflicts in this chapter. The questions are, what happened? How does this happen? And at the very end, we'll consider, how do we keep this from happening in our lives? Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, be glorified today through the reading of your word. Open our ears, soften our hearts, remove all the obstacles, Lord, that the enemy puts up, Lord. Remove all the obstacles that sometimes we put up, Lord, through our own disobedience. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you for your provision. Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask for your help today, Lord. We look to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. And follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet God turned, God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. We see in chapter 13, it begins with the reading of the book of Moses, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It begins with on that day. It doesn't specify a time frame. Uh, This could have been describing a regular reading of God's word before the people, but some very specific things are read from God's word regarding relationships. Remember, as stated by Kerwin a couple of Sundays back, that this issue about intermarriage, this isn't about race, this is about religion. And then we see in verse 3 that the people respond. In verses 4 through 7, in our first conflict, we see that Elias of the priest has 
prepared a large chamber for Tobiah as his residence. Now this wasn't just any chamber, which by the way was about the size of a loft. There was, this was a chamber in the temple. This was the part of the temple that housed the tithes and the offerings and other instruments that were used by the Levites and the singers and also housed their rations. But instead, it now housed Tobiah. Now this had taken place before Nehemiah had returned. After about 12 years as governor in Jerusalem, Nehemiah returned back to the service of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon. And perhaps while Nehemiah was back in the king's service, he may have received a report that was uh, in regards to what was taking place in Jerusalem, kind of like the one he received in chapter 1. After an unspecified time, it was likely that Nehemiah asked the king for another leave so that he could return to Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah saw... And Nehemiah saw with his own eyes what Eliashub the priest had done. Eliashub had prepared for Tobiah a chamber in the courts of the house of God. In verses 8 through 11, we'll see Nehemiah's response. And I'm going to ask you to just follow along with me as I read uh, this text, beginning in verse 8. And I was very angry, and I threw the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back the vessels of the household of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found a portion of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to the field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the household of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. In verses 12 through 14, through 14 we see a, a reordering of God's house. First we see Judah replenish the tithe of the grain, uh, the wine, the oil, back to the chambers. And then Nehemiah sets up administrators over the chambers with assistance. These men were proven to be trustworthy and their responsibilities were clear. They were to distribute to them the items of the chamber to their brothers. Verse 14 ends with a prayer. One of four prayers in this chapter where Nehemiah says to God, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So we begin. What happened here? We see a relationship in the beginning. Verse 4. Not just a relationship, but a sinful relationship. Tobiah was an Ammonite. He was related to Tobiah's family by marriage. And in this opening scene, we can see how one can, one can be adversely affected by damaging relationships with what follows. We see that Eliashib, he misused his office. Uh, Eliashib used the holy privilege for an unholy purpose. The chamber was not intended to be used as some luxury loft, and least of all, to one of God's enemies. He was an enemy of Israel, of the people of Judah. And we clearly see this, if you recall, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7. In all these chapters, we see this man ridiculing. We see this man um, threatening. We see this man not excited about what God is doing with his people. But we also now see this man residing in the temple of a holy God. The use of this room was meant for, for higher and more nobler things. And quite possibly Elisha and his desire to please Tobiah, he minimized the significance 
of this room that had been dedicated to something higher. How, one might ask, if you want to jot down Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we see that after Solomon had completed the rebuilding of that temple, and after he prayed, the passage reads, The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests, they couldn't even enter the house of God, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The temple was meant to house the presence of God. The bottom line here is that Eliashib is blatantly disobeying God's word because he knew that no Ammonite should ever enter, should be admitted into the assembly of God's people. So how does this happen? How does a holy man full of knowledge of God's word, a leader of God's people from a lineage of priests, how does a holy priest betray his holy God. Not many details are found in the text as to how all this man fell in such a way or how it began. We only see that he, in fact, did. Yet the text does give us clues to consider. We see in Malachi, Malachi a prophet who lived during uh, the same time, he lays out in chapters 1 and 2 a series of indictments on the priests of Israel. Chapter 2 describes a priest as one who feared the Lord. And if you fear the Lord, you're not going to put Tobiah in the temple. He stood in awe of him. He described, he's described as one who offered true instruction. A priest is a messenger of the Lord. But then in chapter 2 verse 8, the Lord says, but you have turned aside from the way. The text doesn't offer any specific Specifics as to how this happened, but we do know that he turned aside from the way. Everything kind of everything does point to this relationship, though, with Tobiah. Eliashib was corrupted by his connection with Tobiah because somewhere along the line, uh, the, these families married, and that was the result. They were enmeshed in this in this intermarriage. And that's the connection between Eliashib and Tobiah, not directly, but indirectly through intermarriage. And we see the effect of it. Church, you need to understand that we too can be corrupted by unhealthy and ungodly relationships. Verse 1 opened up with a command that spoke to these relationships. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and five, through 5 is where Nehemiah is quoting from. But in verse 6, we find a caveat. It says that you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity for all of their day and forever after that. Arranged marriages, they may seem foreign to us and ancient, but it does exist in some cultures even now. And most certainly, these arranged marriages existed back in the ancient cultures. Families had much to gain with such arrangements, wealth, position, influence. It's clear that through this relationship, a series of compromises led to this blatant disgraceful act by Eliashib. It's not clear who had more to gain from this relationship, but it's certainly clear who lost. Regardless, Deuteronomy 23 stated that we should not seek their peace or prosperity. And this simply means that we are not to seek 
peace or prosperity from them. The Bible tells us that God is our peace and in Him we dwell in safety and prosperity. As Christians, we stand to lose a whole lot if we don't do what God is asking us to follow in His Word here. We see a priest whose lifestyle is inconsistent with God's Word. He he dishonors the name of God by his actions. His witness is compromised. Good news, when our lifestyle is inconsistent with God's word, we dishonor his name. And our witness is compromised. What is the applicable significance of Eliashib's actions? We're talking about a priest. I'm not a priest. But oh, I beg to differ. And we see in God's word, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, clearly says, You are chosen race. You are a chosen race. You are the royal priesthood. You are God's possession. And we are called to proclaim His excellencies. We've been called out of darkness into a marvelous light. That's the applicable significance. We are the royal priesthood today. In verses 15 through 16, our second conflict. We see in these two verses the people of Judah breaking the Sabbath by trading with the Tyrians. Nehemiah warns them. In verse 16, we see that the Tyrians also lived in the city of Jerusalem. And this could have been an opportunity for them but it was also a challenge and the same for us we have an opportunity but we also have a challenge in verse 12 we see Nehemiah's response follow with me as I read uh, verse 17 then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our noble God bring all this disaster on us, on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on the city by profaning the Sabbath? What happened here? Judah broke the Sabbath for materialistic reasons. Judah compromised their witness by breaking the Sabbath. One commentator wrote this. The Gentile visitors were no longer able to witness as they had formerly the devotion, integrity, and loyalty implicit in the weekly act of worship and rest. Do you imagine on a Sunday morning, no buses running, no trains running, no cars running, no stores open? What that would mean to our society? what that would communicate. And I just kind of want to give you that picture just to kind of show the opportunity that Israel had, that Judah had in their city. Their temple was built. Their walls were built. God had put everything into position so that could be possible. But it didn't happen. The Lord's day was disregarded. And when they had 
because they had just made it about them. They desecrated the day. They missed their opportunity to proclaim the gospel through the Sabbath and all that that means. Are you working so hard that you don't have time for church worship that expresses gratitude and devotion to God? Are you working so hard because, man, I just got to. I got to get it. I need it. I'm not working as a luxury. I'm working because I need to eat. I get that. The Bible gets that. God gets it. And He speaks to you. And He says, remember your Father who knows all that you need. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. The primary way that we celebrate the Sabbath is, like today, is through united worship. And there's much opportunity in that. We have an opportunity to show the world that despite our physical needs, we pause to worship our Creator and our God, Jesus Christ, in whom the Sabbath is fulfilled. The Sabbath was the highlight of the week for the Puritans, uh, I discovered in my readings. For too many of us, though, the highlight of the week came twice. Last week with football on Thursday and today at noon. What's the highlight of your week? I'm going to watch the game today, guys, so this is not about that. This is not about ritual. This is about the object of the ritual. The Sabbath was meant for man. Jesus himself said that. The Lord's Day, though, is a gift to us to delight in Him and all that He's done. Does your Sabbath include corporate worship? Because in essence, that's how the Sabbath is celebrated. It's a pause from labor by people to worship their God. Not just any God. Not just one of the God. But the one true God. And if it doesn't, then your version of the Sabbath, it's not about God, it's about you. And there lie the sin of Judah. And that's how we profane the Sabbath. Just like Judah. When we make it more about us and not him. How does this happen? This simply happens when we place our fight for survival as more important than acknowledging the Lord as creator and to give him all honor and glory in a setting like this. The Sabbath was created for that. Judah somehow lost sight of that. And Christians, we cannot let this happen. The influences will always be with us. It says in the text that the Tyrians, they also lived in the city. And as mentioned, that can be an opportunity, but it can also be a challenge. The Tyrians, they were all about just making money, making their deals. And Judah gave in to those influences. The influence of the pagan culture around them. Rather than just to be obedient in their practice of the Sabbath and influence the culture around them. 
The Sabbath is about appreciating the great works of God and corporate worship together as a people. In verse 23, we come to our third conflict. Nehemiah saw that the Jews had married the women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Here we take notice that their children did not speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah, again in true form with zeal and jealousy for God and his ways, responds. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah points to history to remind us, to remind Judah that if Solomon could fall, so can we. And Solomon, he adds, was beloved by God. Nehemiah continues with, how could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? What happened? Nehemiah observed that intermarriage with foreign women was still taking place. The reason for intermarriage could have been based on passions, but I think that selfish ambition was probably the more likely reason. It was selfish ambition with an eye on personal gain, money, prestige, or any other form of worldly gain. God's ambition has His glory in mind. God's reasons for marriages are not the same as ours. And when we turn away from the Lord, as Malachi shows us, or tells us that the results are devastating. The, the offspring, they did not speak the mother language of Judah. You see, God's word was read and taught in the temples in Hebrew. And because they did not speak the language of Judah, they wouldn't be able to understand the message. A mother's role in family is crucial. A child usually spends the most time with his mother. Even when mother works, kids usually spend more time with mom. And naturally, they're going to absorb her principles. They're going to copy her lifestyle, and certainly in the case in the time of Nehemiah, they're going to follow her faith. When you choose to yoke yourself with an unbeliever, and I want to take that a step further, not just an unbeliever, even with another Christian whose walk is questionable, God will not bless that union. We need to align ourselves with God's word when it comes to dating and marriage. And his blessings will then follow. For sure there will not be a happy ending where God is excluded. Even in Christian marriages we experience conflict. Don't everyone say amen at the same time. How much more so in a relationship when one is serving God and the other one's not? You will only find peace and security in God. Dear ones, 
choose wisely. Because you will never walk as one unless you're walking as one in the way of the Lord. How does this happen? We become unequally yoked when we compromise by not trusting God for all that we need and all that defines us. No man or woman will ever affirm you, value you, or make you feel security like God. Remember Deuteronomy 23.6, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity. And I'd like to address the singles who are seeking relationship. Especially those of you in high school, but all of you. I'd like to use an illustration from a movie that I saw recently. I won't say the name, I won't, I'll spare all the details, I don't want to spoil it for you. There was a young lady who goes to her pastor to talk about her relationship with her unbelieving boyfriend. And she's frustrated because there's conflict and it revolves around the faith. But he's brilliant. He's handsome. He makes me feel special. He gives me a sense of worth and a sense of completion. And though she's saying it, the same applies to you guys too. Because we look for that too in relationships. The pastor listened carefully and he responds this way. I think Pastor Ralph should have played this role, but... The pastor asks, Do you believe God is capable of error, bias, or bad judgment? She responds, no. The pastor continues... So if he's incapable of mistakes and he made you in the likeness and image, in his likeness and image, then it follows that he cares about you to the point that God's only son would be willing to be crucified for you. Just you if it was necessary. Well, if he loves you that much, who cares what your boyfriend thinks? thinks? To the wrong person, you'll never have any worth, but to the right person, you'll mean everything. Only God can satisfy the needs that we sometimes look for in relationships. God in Christ is where you will find all that completes you. Not trusting God is not to believe Him. And that's disobedience. Scripture speaks of blessings and cursings. God blesses us when we obey Him. But He doesn't when we don't. God reminds us in His Word with true stories from the past of what happens when we disobey Him. George Orwell said, The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of history. Church, God has left us His Word in part for us to learn from the lessons of the past. We see Nehemiah here makes a reference to Solomon. Solomon was Israel's greatest king, his wisest king, the richest king in the land. He was a king that asked God for one thing, just give me wisdom to lead your people. And God blessed him many times over in so many areas. 
But just like the people of Judah we see in chapter 13, who started off with so much promise, with so much zeal, that if you remember when, you, uh, when we opened up the, the, the chapter, it says that God's word said that they shall not marry Ammonites or Moabites, and they took it further. They got rid of all of them and all foreigners. I mean, there was a zeal there. And we see in Scripture that it didn't end well for Solomon. He was loved by God, the passage says. Nevertheless, foreign women caused him to sin. Choose wisely. If the person that you're with is not building you up, is not pointing you to Jesus Christ, dump them because it gets complicated once you get married and it gets even more complicated when kids come how do we keep this from happening to us how do we protect ourselves and this section here is going to be shorter but it comes down to the basics prayer the book of Nehemiah saturated with prayer four prayers alone in chapter 13 using covenant language my God my God my God my wife my daughters my son my friends my God how do you communicate with God Prayer is how we touch the, thro- the throne room of God. Prayer is the place that we go to to get all that we need to be able to live, to fight, to survive, to manipulate, to use this word to see us through. Pray alone. Pray. We see, we see the congregation praying together. We see the congregation coming together and say, I'm going to do this. For His glory. We need to pray individually. And we need to pray together as a church. If we're going to make a difference in our community, it's going to start off by how we live our lives. You can come up with any kind of scheme and any kind of plan. But if you are not in covenant relationship with the Lord, you will never be the witness that He intended you to be. And prayer is at the heart of that church prayer is at the heart of that and if we don't pray we can bring anybody here we can look at any video we can look at the stats and it's not going to happen it's not going to happen we need to cultivate this covenant relationship we need to pray we need to pray with the awareness that that it's not by our own strength in Psalm 19 verse 10 the psalmist Praise. I will study your word. I will follow it with my whole heart. Keep my heart from straining. Keep my heart from wandering. We have a tendency to wander. This flesh that we live in will never want anything spiritual. There will always be a conflict. But when we pray, we will overcome. And we will be all that God has called us to be. How else do we keep this from happening? How do we keep from finding ourselves in this this situation? A renewed priority in the study of God's Word. 
through God's word, we will see what it is that God wants us to do. We'll be able to identify sin in our life as we expose ourselves to his word continuously. Individually, but also as a congregation. And we do that here at Good News through adult learning. Aftershocks, they meet, God's kids, and it's followed by Sunday worship where God's word is taught from the pulpit. And finally, a radical commitment to obey God's word. A radical commitment. This has to be more than just an emotional uh, elation or, or food for thought to have a nice intellectual religious conversations. We have to be changed by it. We need to allow it to transform us. And we need to do it together as a people. Corporate prayer, corporate study, and a commitment to walk in holiness, in community. Is that what we're about, Good News Bible Church? Are we? I believe that we are. The appropriate response to the holiness of God is fear, reverence, and the outworking of fear is obedience. Obedience to God's word is holy living, and holiness is not negotiable. And that's the moral of the story. Our witness to a lost world is linked to our conduct, defined by obedience. When we walk in holiness, we adorn the teachings of our God and Savior. Titus, Titus chapter 2. The holiness of God makes the gospel a glorious necessity. A holy ending is found in Jesus Christ. Without holiness, we cannot enter God's heaven. In His holiness, God made a provision for our sin the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning as we prepare to take communion, if you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to refrain from participating. But to please observe and just witness as we celebrate. I'm going to give a few instructions here so that we can prepare because this, this is what it's all about right here. The death of God's only Son. And through this act, we proclaim His death. And all that it means, we have been given a wonderful grace. But it's also a grace that not only forgives us and cleanses us, but it enables us to live and live holy lives. Once you're prepared, once you're ready to come forward and take communion after I pray, you just kind of just come forward and take the elements, the bread, the juice, and go back to your seats and just take it for when you're ready. I'm going to ask the prayer counselors to come forward. If you want to pray with somebody, they're going to be here. If you don't know Jesus, they can pray with you. Someone can pray with you, next to you, if you came with someone. 
We want to pray. We want to pray and prepare our hearts. We don't want to take this in an unworthy manner. Not that we're worthy, but in an unworthy manner. If, we can, if, we, if we're living in sin, if we have not confessed our sin, let's do that first. And then take of the elements. So after I pray, I will exit the stage and and as the Lord leads you, let's celebrate. Let's pray. Father, our understanding of your word, may our understanding of your word, Lord, be characterized by our obedience. Father, may that be based on a growing understanding of your holiness. Help us, Father, to fear you, the living God, with the deepest, tenderest fear, and worship you with trembling hope and a repentant heart. In Jesus' name.